Hello and welcome to The Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. This episode, the last of season five, will look at the life of Nzinga, queen of the Ndongo and Matamba states of present-day Angola. She helped keep her kingdom powerful and essentially independent in the face of European colonial conquest, and managed to do so for decades while often fighting in the front lines with her soldiers. Maps and images can be found on the website almostforgotten.squarespace.com. You can email me, almostforgottenpodcast at gmail.com, or find me on Twitter, at the Almost Forgot. This is Season 5, Episode 10, in Zynga, and this is the Almost Forgotten. Nzinga was born in the southern part of Africa, on the west coast, south of the Congo River region, north of the Namib Desert area. Today this region is, more or less, the country of Angola. She was born in the late 16th century, probably around 1583, and was the daughter of a local chieftain. By the 1580s, the Europeans, particularly the Spanish, had already begun their conquest and colonization of the western hemisphere. And they had begun to interact with sub-Saharan Africa in a similar manner. The two major native African powers in the region included the kingdom of Mutapa to the south of Angola, which remained strong but by this point had ceded some power and autonomy to the Portuguese along the coastline. And the other was the strong and independent kingdom of Congo, whose king had converted to Christianity in 1495. This Congo is usually spelled with a K, and was located mostly more in northern Angola, although it certainly spilled into today's southeastern Democratic Republic of Congo. The Portuguese had also set up colonial ports in eastern sub-Saharan Africa, the region of Mozambique. Further north of that, the Ethiopian Empire maintained its independence, sometimes coming into conflict with regional sultanates, highlighting that area's ties to the Muslim world. At that time, the Muslim world was dominated by the Ottoman Empire, which stretched from Baghdad and Basra up through Mesopotamia and Anatolia to the Balkans all the way to Belgrade and modern Budapest. And of course, it held the North African coast as well. The rest of Europe included the aforementioned Portuguese, which had, in 1580, been absorbed into the Spanish Empire under Philip II. And the Spanish were the most powerful empire in the world at the time controlling, in addition to those Portuguese African holdings, Sardinia, Sicily and Naples, Mexico, Central America and the west coast of South America, and, oh, let's say nominally, the Low Countries. The 1580s was when we saw the act of abjuration and the death of William the Silent in the Low Countries. France was dealing with its wars of religion. Henry of Navarre wouldn't become king until 1589. In England, Elizabeth I was approaching 30 years on the throne, and the next English king, James, was already king in Scotland. The Holy Roman Empire held most of Central Europe, and the devastating Thirty Years' War was still 30 years away. Eastern Europe featured a massive dual state, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, formally established in 1569, although the union of these two countries was already a few centuries old, 
when Grand Duke Yogaila of Lithuania married himself into the Polish crown. Russia had recently been transformed into a coherent empire, and the Tsar known as Ivan the Terrible died in 1584. Further east, China was in its Ming Dynasty period, and able to fend off most Portuguese incursions there, while the Japanese were in a Warring States period, soon to be ended when Tokugawa established his shogunate in 1603. To the south, the Portuguese had already knocked the Malacca Sultanate out of power and were battling the other sultanates on the archipelagos to establish supremacy in the maritime portion of Southeast Asia. And the mainland portion of Southeast Asia was still held together mostly under one man, Bayanong, who wouldn't die until 1581. In the Western Hemisphere, the most powerful entities were Spanish. New Spain had displaced the Aztecs and others in 1521, and the Viceroyalty of Peru had displaced the Incas by the 1540s. To the north, the Iroquois Confederacy may have been around for about a hundred years, and were certainly in place at this time around the eastern Great Lakes region and beyond. The mound-building Mississippian culture was at its end by the late 16th century, the great city Cahokia abandoned for a century or two. The Spanish were still the main European presence, St. Augustine, Florida was founded in 1565, and England's first attempt at a permanent settlement there, the failed Roanoke colony, wasn't until 1585. The French had started their fur trading exploration further north, although a few attempts at permanent settlement had failed. The slave trade had picked up, though, mostly to help with plantations in colonial holdings in the Caribbean and South America. The Portuguese brought slaves over directly, the Spanish instead gave that job to merchants, and when the two empires combined, the Portuguese fell in line with the Spanish. But they still held forts and colonies all along the African coast. And while, unlike in later centuries, the main purpose was not to capture slaves, it was to make money and trade goods, among these goods traded were certainly human beings. In the region of central western Africa, where the country of Angola now sits, the Portuguese presence had begun about a hundred years earlier, in the latter half of the 15th century. They were there by the 1480s. Bartolomeu Diaz rounded the Cape of Good Hope in 1488, and Vasco da Gama bypassed Angola when he shot straight south from Sierra Leone in 1497, eventually turning east, hitting what is today South Africa in November, before eventually landing in Mozambique in 1498, and finally reaching India in 1499. We in the West might tend to think of colonialism as being mostly about all these colonists coming over and pushing natives off the land to claim it as their own. But the Portuguese didn't really think of Angola as a place to expand their people's territory. Angola was to the Portuguese, like much of Africa and Asia was, a place where they could essentially set up money-making trade outposts. The subjugation of the indigenous people usually went part and parcel with that, although the style of subjugation was not always consistent. The Portuguese would be perfectly happy to find a local client kingdom to provide them whatever it is they were looking for. In other words, this wasn't anything like the colonization of the Eastern American seaboard. It was a different thing. As far as Nzinga goes, most of what we know about her comes from the Italian missionary Giovanni Antonio Cavizzi from his posthumously published 
Historica Descrizione de Tre Regni, Congo, Matamba, et Angola. His book is one of the primary and most essential sources on Nzinga's life, and his writing oozes with vehement racism and sexism. He devotes chapters of his book to the barbarity of their heathen religion, the cruelty and dishonesty of their culture, and the inferiority of these descendants of Ham, as he calls them. He wrote of Nzinga, quote, I will only add that she was a sea of lust and had more concubines than the three most famous prostitutes in the world had lovers. She surpassed the tyrants in barbarity, the lions and tigers in cruelty, the harpies in wrath, and the poisonous snakes in ferocity she showed in her lair, shedding more blood in peace than others in war, unquote. Okay. Nzinga was not a woman of peace. Nobody that has been profiled on this podcast have completely passed their lives in peace. But come on with that description. I mean, he literally writes at some point that she was once a harpy thirsty for human blood, but then when she finally converted to Christianity the second time, she was loving and benign. Now, certainly a religious conversion does change the way someone acts, but this is clearly written by a highly pious man who wanted to point out the greatness of his religion. Cavazzi also spends more time at the court of Nzinga's rival claimant to the throne, so some of his stories about her may well have come from them. Anyway, modern historians have had to look past this colonial and paternalistic attitude of complete dismissal of anything positive about the native inhabitants of Angola. But they must also do so without, of course, presuming that Nzinga and her people were instead innocent and infallible. The culture there was different than what Europeans knew. And there were certainly terrible things done by the Africans as well, including at least some amount of human sacrifice, probably cannibalism, certainly the murder of captives, all the things that even today we would look at as barbarous, although perhaps we would find a better term for it. With all that, and with many disparate and warlike powers constantly vying for supremacy, Angola was a place that was right to be seen as chaotic and dangerous, even though we'd hold off on using the term uncivilized today. The indigenous peoples there certainly had a robust civilization, with centuries of history and tradition, with their own religious beliefs, one that the Europeans didn't really try to understand. They only cared about the roles of the priests and what the local royal families were doing. Nzinga was born into such royalty. Her father was the king, or Ngola, of a Bantu group of people called Mbundu. He was the Ngola of the Ndongo kingdom, and obviously the Europeans confused these two terms. Nzinga was adored by her father. According to Kabazi, quote, she was brought up by her nurse with much care and vigilance, as was appropriate to a king's daughter and her father loved her greatly and placed her before other children he had by various concubines and wished to see her often and in his fashion bless her. We don't know nearly as much about pre-colonialization era in Dongo, but we know that it was essentially a vassal kingdom to the independent kingdom of Congo to the north. Ndongo, however, was a powerful vassal kingdom. By the 16th century, it had asked Portugal for recognition as a kingdom independent to Congo. Ndongo was a decentralized state with a king that had little central authority over his landed magnates. Near Ndongo was the kingdom of Matamba, 
another smaller Mbundu state fighting for true independence and supremacy in the region. In the late 16th and earliest part of the 17th century, the Portuguese were mostly confined to the plains on the coast of the region. But in the 1610s, they began to utilize the Imbangala in their attempts to subdue the Mbundu territories. The Mbangala were a particularly brutal militaristic group in the region, and their use by the Portuguese helped push the Ndongo and Matamba kingdoms back from their westernmost territorial holdings. Ndongo and Portugal were in an on-and-off state of conflict, and at this point in time, the tide had started to shift in favor of the Portuguese. The Ndongo government was weakening, perhaps coinciding with the death of Nzinga's father, which had precipitated some sort of succession crisis, perhaps even a civil war. Eventually, though, Nzinga's brother Mbandi became Ngola Mbandi, the king of Ndongo. At some point in the late 1610s, after a lull in the action, Mbandi renewed conflict with the Portuguese, but his armies were handily defeated. There was a period of four or five years, about, starting around 1617, where the Portuguese tried to set up a puppet king for Ndongo, but were unsuccessful. So, they were probably willing to negotiate with Mbandi. Remember, the Europeans were greatly outnumbered and needed the natives to, at the very least, not be constantly attacking them. Mbandi decided to send embassies to the Portuguese and see if they could arrange a peace treaty. Nzinga was absent at the time from the Ndongo court. According to Cavazzi, it seems Mbandi had ordered her child or children killed to ensure that they weren't threats to his power. In 1622, Nzinga was recalled by Mbandi to be sent as part of an embassy to Luanda, the Portuguese capital of Angola. She decided to accept the offer and went on the embassy, along with other dignitaries, as well as a gift of slaves to the Portuguese. There, she was greeted with great honor and celebration, at least until she met with João Correa de Sousa, the Portuguese governor. Whether it was because she was a woman or because she was a native African, D'Souza did not provide her a chair, but rather a mat on the floor. Nzinga responded by having one of her attendants get down on her hands and knees, and Nzinga proceeded to sit on the attendant's back and use her as a chair. She seems to have been a pretty good negotiator, too. She asked for peace, and the governor responded that they must lay down their arms, keep the peace with Portugal, and do the whole friends with my friends, enemies with my enemies thing. He also asked for annual tribute, to which Nzinga said she couldn't agree to, saying essentially that this would make them slaves of the Portuguese, not allies, and this her king could not do. Instead of being upset by this, it seems the governor was impressed by Nzinga's intellect and temerity, and not only accepted her terms, but asked her to join him for a banquet in her honor. In her time in Luanda, she converted to Catholicism and took the Christian name Anna de Souza, taking the last name of her Christian sponsor, or godfather, Governor de Souza. She left after being showered with gifts, no doubt the people excited about a new soon-to-be Christian kingdom as an ally in the region. In the end, she may have indeed agreed to some form of tribute, and she certainly agreed to making Indango subordinate in some way to Portugal, because she wanted help from Portugal. The Imbangala were terrorizing them, 
and though previous Portuguese governors had used the Imbangala as mercenary armies, now they were out on their own, causing problems for Ndongo. So Nzinga was asking the Portuguese for help in ending the threat. Historian Joseph C. Miller, in his Nzinga of Matamba in a New Perspective, points out that Nzinga's embassy and her subsequent conversion had thrust her into a new position. The Portuguese, as religiously devout as their Spanish neighbors, saw her in a new light, as a potential leader for her people due to her negotiating skills, and one that they could work with because of her newfound religion. When she returned, her brother was at first eager to convert himself, but he soon changed his mind as it became clear that the Portuguese weren't going to be much help. In fact, along with the Imbangala threat to Ndongo, the Portuguese continued to make raids into their kingdom. Ngola Mbandi was overwhelmed by all of this, and he committed suicide. Or maybe, as her enemies insisted, he was poisoned by Nzinga. Interestingly, Kavazi did not level this accusation against her, but rather stated only that some accuse her of it, and that it wouldn't be something beyond her character. With the death of her brother, Nzinga took over the kingdom as regent for her brother's seven-year-old son. But she had him killed soon after, something Kavazi most certainly does accuse her of doing. After killing off relatives and consolidating power, like you do, she seems to have had a strong enough grip on power to maintain a legitimate following after setbacks. This in itself is pretty remarkable. Miller points out that, as Mbandi's half-sister, they shared the same father. While the Europeans called her a sister, this relationship was considered much less close in Mbundu culture. He writes that after the death of her brother, quote, Nzinga had claimed his title as ruler of the kingdom and a far-reaching political and economic detente seemed about to revolutionize diplomatic relations between the Angola kingdom and the Portuguese. But the brilliance of her meteoric rise should not obscure the subtle indications that she received little loyalty from the Mbundu farmers of the state, and that she probably seized the royal title in the face of opposition from the dominant internal political factions in the kingdom, unquote. Nzinga consolidated her power and centralized power in her kingdom by taking advantage of one of the societal classes of the Mbundu people. They were called slaves by the Europeans, and while this word sort of fits, they might be better described as serfs. They were royal slaves, and were a little different than the chattel slaves which made up another part of society. They were sort of like the unfree common folk that abounded in Europe a few centuries prior and still existed in parts of Europe to that day, and she used them to help her rule at the expense of the landed magnates. As you can imagine, this didn't sit well with most of the nobility. According to John K. Thornton in his book Firearms, Diplomacy, and Conquest in Angola, quote, upon Nzinga's accession to the throne, warfare in Angola entered a new phase. Nzinga had been her father's favorite and had accompanied him to the wars. She was well known and liked by the army, who accepted her as their queen and leader, but her accession was controversial, unquote. In 1624, she negotiated further with the Portuguese. She gave many concessions, including allowing the European slave traders access further east into her lands. But she was promised that the Portuguese would abandon some of their fortresses deeper in her territory. In the end, though, 
this treaty fell apart. A new governor came in, and he wouldn't abandon those fortresses. And she started taking in escaped slaves that had fled Portuguese plantations. All the while, the Imbangala continued to cause a problem in her lands. The queen began to gather an army to defend Ndongo from both the Imbangala and the Portuguese. The Imbangala were actually multiple groups, and Nzinga was able to form an alliance with one of the strongest of these groups. She incorporated this warband into her kingdom and used their complex military organization to improve her own armies. She also incorporated, according to the European chroniclers, their superstitious and religious beliefs, possibly including cannibalism. But this relationship did not last, and she soon found herself alone against the colonizers yet again. The Portuguese launched attacks along the Coanza River and in 1626 began pushing Nzinga's forces further back and she had to move her seat of power. In July they attacked this place and there was fierce fighting. Hundreds were killed on both sides. But the Angolans took the brunt of it and Nzinga sent an embassy to the attackers. Now she was willing to take the offer of Portuguese vassalage again in exchange for peace but she was convinced instead to flee rather than submit by her advisors. She fled along with her husband, who was titled the king but recognized as her concubine rather than as a ruler, but he soon died. After this, at least for the next four decades or so, she insisted on being called king. Her new husbands were called queens and forced to dress as women. After fleeing, Nzinga remained the leader of the Ndongo, and she still had at least some following. So the Portuguese countered by trying to name a king of their own. A leading royal named Hari Akilwanji was given the Portuguese seal of approval, and he joined with them to continue the war against Nzinga. He wasn't just any old pretender. Being one of those dissatisfied landed magnates, he no doubt had some Mbundu support. Her political legitimacy was already somewhat shaky, and without great victories to help her, she was in some trouble. Queen Nzinga fled to the neighboring lands of the Matamba. This was the one Mbundu kingdom in the region that actually had a history of female rule. And she was not alone, she still had forces at her disposal. As she entered the villages of Matamba, they submitted to her, and more warriors flocked to her side. She eventually made her way to their seat of power, and ousted their leader, another queen. While Ndongo had somewhat fallen apart under her, she now found herself in charge of Matamba, and suddenly in a position of greater power. As the slave trade expanded farther to the north, Nzinga took advantage of this, leveraging the economic benefits of these relationships. She raided slave trade routes to the south of her new territory, pushing more trade into her lands. Warfare with the Portuguese and the pretenders to her thrones continued. Thornton writes, quote, By the end of the 1630s, this war was stalemated. The Imbangala bands were now divided into three groups. One was with Nzinga, incorporated into her state through Nzinga's son. Another remained with the Portuguese. And a third band, led by Kasanje, founded its own independent state south of Nzinga's capital in Matamba, unquote. She also, as Queen of Matamba, spent the 1630s consolidating her power in that kingdom, including her economic power. 
This included raids to her northwest, into Congo vassal states, to reach the coastline north of Luanda, where Dutch merchants had begun to appear. She set up a trading relationship with the Dutch, which soon paid off for her. The Dutch Republic was also at war with the Portuguese. Although the Eighty Years' War was still ongoing, this was really a conflict over colonial empires and had little to do with the politics in Europe. In 1641, the Dutch landed a force of just over 2,000 soldiers at the Portuguese colonial capital of Luanda. Of the attack, Cavazzi wrote that Luanda, quote, is the chief of all the fortresses that there are in the kingdom of Angola where the royal governor resides, and the chamber with the royal ministers through which the fortresses of the interior are governed. So, the Dutch armada of 22 vessels appeared, and saw the city of Luanda and captured it by the force of arms as the citizens could not resist their enemies, unquote. The Portuguese fled upriver, and the Dutch were welcomed by Nzinga. They formed an alliance with Nzinga, as well as the Kingdom of Congo to the north, to oust the Portuguese from the region. Nzinga was happy to have assistance in taking on the enemies that had pushed her out of Ndongo lands. The Dutch and Portuguese fought essentially to a stalemate, while the Dutch were able to hold on to Luanda and some of the coastal forts, the Portuguese held their ground in the interior. By 1643, the hostilities between the two European powers ground to a halt, the Dutch not finding it worthwhile to exhaust any more forces to further harass the Portuguese, and the Portuguese without enough forces to push the Dutch out. But Nzinga continued the fighting, trying to rid what she probably saw as her lands, even if the Dutch allies wouldn't agree, of invading enemies. The Portuguese, meanwhile, found other local allies to help bolster their forces. In 1646, Nzinga suffered a defeat in battle at Cavanga, but she escaped with at least part of her army. Chronicles of that battle help us learn about the organization of her troops, which were divided into units of 125 men, who could be formed up into larger 500-men units, which were often combined into significantly larger armies of over 10,000. There were junior officers that commanded the smaller units, more senior ones to command the larger groupings. It was not a professional army per se, but any thoughts of a disorganized mess of natives should be dispelled. At this battle, she was able to array her armies in typical center-left and right groupings, taking personal command of the center group, giving her most trusted general command of the left, Things very familiar sounding. And there was no cavalry, not for the Africans or the Europeans, despite some attempts at it. Thornton writes, Although the horse and cavalry had a place in the Western African military systems, it was completely absent in Central Africa and was never introduced there successfully. The reconnaissance and skirmishing normally performed by cavalry were carried out in Angola by special troops known locally as Pombo, who were lightly armed soldiers noted for their ability to run quickly. In addition to reconnaissance and skirmishing, the Pombo also pursued enemies once battle was over. Unquote. After her defeat at Kavanga, Nzinga begged for more Dutch assistance. The diplomacy paid off for her. She gathered together her forces, numbering around 8,000, and joined with a few hundred Dutch soldiers. While we don't know many of the details of her next battle at Combe, there may have been as many as 30,000 African troops under Hari, 
that usurper allied with the Portuguese, alongside 600 Portuguese. We do know that on October 29, 1647, quote, she crushed the Portuguese army and forced the remaining Portuguese forces and their allies to fall back into their three fortified presidios. She laid close siege to all three, but, lacking artillery, was unable to storm them, and lacking naval superiority on the river, was unable to cut off their supplies, unquote. Contemporary chroniclers put the Portuguese and Allied casualties at 3,000. And Nzinga wasn't sitting back in her capital at this time telling her soldiers what to do. She was fighting with her army. According to Thornton in a separate article on Nzinga in the Journal of African History, quote, she led her troops personally in battle. The Portuguese soldier and chronicler Antonio de Oliveira de Cadernega personally saw her just behind the battle lines in the engagement at Angola Mini Akaita in 1646. She equipped a battalion of her ladies-in-waiting as soldiers and used them as her personal guard as well. And she was quite dexterous in the use of arms herself, unquote. The Portuguese had recovered by the following year, sending reinforcements from Brazil. Salvador Correa de Sá, a leading nobleman from their South American colony, arrived with a fleet to retake Angola, as well as the island of Sao Tome. In 1648, he captured Luanda and re-established Portuguese control over the region. Correa de Sá reached out to Nzinga and offered her amnesty if she would again return to Portuguese vassalage. Nzinga was eager to accept this, while the Portuguese may have been genuinely fearful of what she could do to them if she continued to fight. She still had a tenuous hold on power, though, thanks to her legitimacy issues, even in Matamba's more female ruler-friendly environment. Without the Dutch to help prop her up, she abandoned her decade-and-a-half fight with the Portuguese and accepted peace with them in hopes of securing her own position. Negotiations began, and by the mid-1650s, she had signed another peace treaty with the authorities in Luanda. She made concessions again, and again converted to Catholicism, although this time the conversion is interpreted as much more sincere than her previous conversion. She gave up quite a bit of her kingdom's autonomy, but she guaranteed its protection. Miller points out, quote, Her conversion, and hence her reconciliation with the Portuguese, resulted from her acute perception of renewed Portuguese strength, and from an astute understanding of how unwillingly the Mbundu and Matamba acknowledged her own authority, unquote. Things might not have been quite as bad for Nzinga as Miller contends. Subsequent scholarship has suggested that while Miller is not wrong about her legitimacy issues, she was probably in a stronger position than he wrote. In 1657, Queen Nzinga tried to send an ambassador to Portugal and to the Holy See in Rome, but racist and paternalistic attitudes of the day thought it was imprudent to send Africans, even royalty, to courts in Europe because they were worried about their behavior. She was able to send a letter proclaiming her Catholicism and obedience to the Pope, and she signed it Queen Don Anna. As a result of this letter, Giovanni Cavazzi was dispatched to Nzinga's court as essentially an advisory priest. So that's a watershed moment, only in that it gets us better insight into her reign and some of the history of her deeds. He arrived to her capital in 1659. 
Around this time, Nzinga built a new capital city and was helped by various churchmen in building a stone church and probably other buildings, which suggests a significant lull in conflict in the late 1650s and early 1660s. In 1661, there was a formal peace made between Nzinga and the Portuguese, although once again, it was not to last. In 1662, Cavazza saw her perform at a military review and was impressed with her abilities to keep up with the performances of the rest of her troops. The 80-year-old queen told him, Excuse me, father, for I am old, but when I was young I yielded nothing in agility or ability to wound any in Bengala and I was not afraid to face 25 armed men, unquote. In 1663, Nzinga became ill, and at the age of 80, she died peacefully in her quarters, surrounded by her court. Her sister was proclaimed the new queen, and Nzinga was given a royal burial. After her death, though, her sister could not maintain significant authority in the kingdom. She died soon after, in 1666, and while the Portuguese tried to keep this allied native kingdom with a Catholic leader, much of the Mbundu leadership was hostile, and civil wars became frequent, while the relationship between the two nations eroded. Soon after her death, the parts of Ndongo that remained under Hari's control revolted against the Portuguese and were defeated, ending any sort of independence. But Matamba, managed to remain independent for another 80-some-odd years, despite civil war and conflict with the Portuguese. They fought the colonizers and defeated them in the 1720s, but eventually, in 1744, the Portuguese invaded Matamba with a massive force and again subjugated the kingdom. The Portuguese slowly expanded control over the region, although much of the kingdom of Congo remained independent until the 1850s. Starting in the 1950s and ramping up to full-scale conflict in the early 1960s, Angola waged a war of independence against Portugal, which finally ended in 1974. That was followed by a devastating civil war that lasted almost 30 years. The faction with the most power was a Marxist group, which abandoned that ideology after the collapse of the Soviet Union, paving the way for multi-party elections in 1992. But civil war continued until 2002, when a formal ceasefire was signed between the two largest factions. Angola has a more stable government today, but a country that was a prosperous colony in the first half of the 20th century, with significant farming exports and a highly developed capital city, has seen its economy devastated after nearly a half century of constant warfare. Angola's road to recovery will be long, but it has significant natural resources and has seen high levels of economic growth since 2002. As Queen of Ndongo and Matamba, Nzinga dealt with significant ups and downs in her career, and while she assumed power in 1622 and had to navigate through various alliances and acquiesce to power-reducing treaties, she did hold power of some sort for 40 years. She led a truly remarkable and improbable life, we turn again to Miller, who wrote, quote, Her sex disqualified her from many Umbundu political offices reserved for males, and her origins in the lineageless community at the Umbundu King's royal court made her an outsider in terms of the lineage politics of most Umbundu states. But she overcame these disadvantages by skillful manipulation of the aliens present on the Umbundu border, 
in Bengala warrior bands, the Portuguese and the Dutch, and dominated Mbundu politics and diplomacy until her death in 1663. Nzinga was a powerful leader that fought a protracted and at times successful war against invading colonial European forces. She was ruthless at times, murdering members of her family, enslaving and trading people, and collaborating with the brutal in Bengala. But she was also brilliant at taking advantage of the chaos the Europeans introduced into the region, allying at times with different colonizers, playing them and other native states off each other to gain power for herself and her kingdom. She is a hero of modern Angola and Africa in general, and a symbol of African resistance against the European colonizers, because she was a successful queen who, despite all her setbacks, managed to keep her African kingdom essentially independent for most of her life and beyond, over a century in total. So, I suppose that's it for Season 5. Thanks to everyone for sticking with me. I hope to be back next year. If things go right, it'll be early in the year, but, you know, best laid plans and all that. In the meantime, find me on Twitter, at the Almost Forgot, or email me, almostforgottenpodcast at gmail.com. Say hi. Thanks again for listening.